Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for your word. Um, I thank you for this season, a new year, the season of epiphany together. Uh, and we pray that by your spirit, as we celebrate in this season, God, you would manifest yourself among us, that your voice would be heard with clarity, and that we would respond in worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are uh, in our, our 21 days of prayer. In the season of Epiphany, Jonathan introduced this idea of hospitality that is kind of our focus. And maybe some of that is kind of unfamiliar to you. Uh, maybe we say Epiphany and you say Say again, you know, like you know what the word means, but you don't know what that's really all about. Well, the, the central narrative of the season of Epiphany is the story of the Magi, right? These three kings, these three wise men, these three whatever they are, maybe you haven't quite figured out what you think they are. Uh, you've always been confused by that, maybe. Uh, what exactly are they? And um, history seems to say that they are astrologers. Right? These, these men were, were studiers of the stars. They would have been not kings themselves, but probably advisors to a king. In some king's court, these men were the ones who interpreted dreams, who foretold the future, who advised a king and told him whether this was a good idea or a bad idea. Similar to the figures you know from like the book of Daniel. If you recall, Daniel has this very important role in the king's court, right? Same thing with Joseph in Pharaoh's court. He has all these advisors. These figures, these magi, were probably something like that, right? And that made them incredibly influential men, incredibly important men in their cultures. But they were, as important as they were, still Gentiles. And they were unbelievers. And you can imagine how awkward it must have been for them to step into a Jewish home. Everybody in there was probably thinking, who invited these guys? Do they realize this is not how we do things? It's an interesting thing that's happening when they show up, right? They go to Jerusalem first because that's the obvious place you would go to find the king of the Jews. And they are pointed toward Bethlehem. That's where the Messiah would be born. If the Messiah has been born, that's where he's going to come from. And as they turn toward Bethlehem to head there, Matthew says they see a star over Bethlehem, the one they've been looking for. And Matthew says, at the sight of this star, as they begin to move toward Bethlehem, they are filled with joy, overwhelmed with joy. The Greek actually says, they rejoiced with joy. They joyed with joy, right? That's what it says. It's trying to emphasize the idea that they're so overcome with joy at what's about to take place. They are about to meet this king that they know of. Something incredible is happening. And that is the heart of Epiphany joy. We think of, of Christmas as being this, this very joyful season, and it is, but Epiphany is like the height of that. It's the extension of that. We get there and we just stay there in celebration and joy, finding joy in the God who has decided to make his home among his people. Not a distant God, but a God who has drawn near, who's made his home among his people and not just revealed himself, though, to his people alone, not just to us, but to the ends of the earth, to the nations. He has made himself known. He desires them. This is at the heart of Epiphany. And we thought, what if we began the, the new year there? 
which is what the church has been doing for, you know, a few thousand years at this point. What if we began the year in joy? Because people begin their years in a lot of different ways, right? We think of the new year, and honestly, it feels a little bit like a Monday to me. It's all about business, right? It's all about the grind. It's all about putting things in order. It's about achieving your dreams. It's about accomplishing those tasks you haven't taken care of, right? It's just a Monday is what it feels like. It's all business. I have to better myself. I have to accomplish this thing that I've been longing for or desiring. What if instead we began to simply enjoy and wonder at the thing God is doing and not in anticipation of what I might be able to do myself? What if we began with this, this joy at the God who has made himself known, not just to his own people, but to people like us, to Gentiles, to the nations, to the ends of the earth. And the Magi kind of confront us with that reality. They force us to see it, that in Jesus, God was speaking not just to me as an individual, God was speaking to the ends of the earth, to the nations. Even the Gentiles are a part of this redemption that God is working. Even those who don't know, who've never heard, even those who aren't familiar with it, even those who are different from me, God intends to include in this kingdom he has established on earth as it is in heaven, right? The Magi have always been these disruptive figures in our nativity scene. They've always interrupted our cultural Christmas. Just think about it, right? Think about the nativity scene you grew up with in your house. Maybe you didn't grow up with one in your house. Maybe one of your friends did. Maybe your grandma did. Think about that, that, that awkward live nativity scene that your church put on or something. Maybe you remember that instead. Think about American Christmas as a whole, right? This is how it normally looks, right? Here's our nativity scene. There's Joseph, and he is white. And then there's Mary, and she is white. And then there's baby Jesus, and he is also white. white. Very good, Daniel. <laughs> But then there are the Magi, and the Magi are disruptors. They interrupt this little cozy cultural American Christmas, and they say, nah. They remind us of something else that's happening, right? Here are these three dark-skinned figures reminding us of God's desire for people that don't look like me. God's desire for the nations. God's desire or the other in my mind, whatever that might be. And truth be told, like we've kind of become comfortable with the wise men. We like these guys. Like Christians like the way the wise men make us feel. We look at our nativity scenes and we think to ourselves, especially in our, our cultural moment where we focus a lot on, you know, like the idea of globalization and cultural sensitivity, right? We want to, to be aware of these kinds of things. We want to emphasize diversity and we think to ourselves, how progressive of us. Right? Look at the church, man. Look at Christianity, how progressive, how open-minded, how forward-thinking we are. Look at my nativity scene. There are three non-white dudes in it. Forget that there shouldn't be any white dudes in it, right? We'll get to that later, right? That, that, it's too much, too fast. We've got we to gotta deal with some companies that make nativity scenes, apparently, right? Here are these three men interrupting our gray, monolithic nativity scenes and reminding us of the diversity of the kingdom. 
reminding us that God isn't just redeeming you. God isn't just redeeming those like you, and God isn't just redeeming those you like. The Magi turn us toward the nations, toward what God is doing there, among the alien, among the stranger, among the refugee and the poor, among the immigrant, among the widow and the orphan. They turn us in this way, away from ourselves. And so, in Epiphany, in our, our 21 days of prayer, we thought, what if we talked about that? Hospitality toward not just those we're comfortable with, hospitality toward all, right? This thing we see emphasized in Scripture. And we thought today we'd come to Leviticus, to this passage that is focused on the alien, the immigrant, the poor, the refugee, the widow, the orphan. And in Leviticus 19, right, you're seeing this idea of hospitality that Jonathan introduced last week. It really is baked into the character of God's people from the very earliest days. We were always supposed to be peculiarly hospitable, uniquely hospitable. God's people were all, always supposed to be this way. We were always supposed to choose to invite people into the abundance of our lives. We were always supposed to try and create space in our lives that others might come in. And that joy, right, that we see in Epiphany that we're celebrating, that joy was always something we were supposed to be inviting others into alongside us. It was always supposed to be this way, right? I make room in my life so that others can experience the joy of what God is doing in and around me. How can I make room? How am I inviting others into the joy of what God is doing in my life and not hoarding it for myself and celebrating it as something good? How am I inviting others into the goodness of what God is doing in my own life? And the book of Leviticus, kind of surprisingly, is very interested in this. When you think of Leviticus, I don't think that's what comes to mind necessarily, right? Whole lot of sacrifices, whole lot of laws, but there's also a lot about hospitality. If you know anything about the book of Leviticus, the book of Leviticus is all about God's people becoming a reflection of who he is, right? It's all about them becoming holy. Why? The phrase is repeated over and over again in Leviticus, be holy for I am holy. Over and over again, you'll see it in Leviticus. I am holy and you must be holy, right? So the whole book of Leviticus is holding this out for us to see, right? This is who God is. This is what God has done and you must do likewise. Over and over again. If God is to dwell with his people, if he is this holy, you must become holy in this way. And that comes down to, to the smallest minutia of their everyday lives. Holiness is about the smallest sort of decisions they make. All the way down to the way they work. God worked six days and he rested on the seventh. Therefore, you work six days and you will rest on the seventh. And yes, that will make your life more complicated. It would be much simpler if you could just work whenever you wanted to. But God's people are peculiar. They choose to live a very different kind of way. More than that, God just doesn't want to tell them about how they ought to rest, how they ought to Sabbath. God wants to teach them what their work, day in and day out, those other six days, should look like. He says, when you're harvesting your fields, when you're harvesting your vineyards, 
We ought to do it a very peculiar kind of way. This is what it should look like. You ought to leave a portion of your fields unharvested, a portion of your vineyards untouched, right? When you harvest, that means you don't go all the way to the edges. You leave some untouched, right? That means when you harvest your field, you're leaving the corners. When you are in your vineyard harvesting, you pick up the grapes that have fallen. You shake the trees, but you don't keep on shaking. You don't keep coming back and picking up every last grape until none are left. You leave some. It means when you're, you're gathering wheat in the field, if some drops to the ground, if it falls out of your hands, leave it there. Don't touch it. And that way, the poor, the alien, the stranger in the land, the refugee, the widow, and the orphan can come and they will always find that in Israel, they don't have to be hungry. I mean, that is beautiful. What a beautiful picture of who God is and the way he's calling his people to live, right? But then there's the other side of the thing, right? If you're a farmer, think how that sounds. You sowed the seed in the ground, you cultivated it for months on end. You woke up early. You slaved over this crop. You gave yourself to this thing completely. And now God is saying to you, I need you to waste some of it. If it sounds wasteful, it is. You're just supposed to waste. Leave some of it. And who knows? Maybe the birds will get to it before the poor do. You don't know. It's not your place. If it seems wasteful, it's because it is. It would have been a hard decision to make over and over again, year after year, to choose to just leave something, to just waste something that you'd worked so hard for. And that's the point. God has always been wasteful. God has always been reckless. In his dealings with us, he has always been wasteful and reckless. The gospel was always wasteful and reckless. And I don't know that we, we recognize that. And I don't know that the people of Israel recognize that. And he was confronting them with it. There's something wasteful about it, and that is the point. Think about it. From the, the moment God creates Adam and Eve and invites them to join in the goodness of his creation, to experience the goodness of the garden with him. And from the moment they betray him anyway, he allows them to still be in his creation. He still wants to share that goodness with them. From the moment he redeems them from slavery in Egypt and promises to them that he will bring them to that land they have been longing for of their own. Knowing full well the kind of rebellion that they were capable of. It was always a risky decision God was making. It was always a questionable choice God was making. It always seemed reckless that he would bring humanity into his goodness to share in his goodness with him. It was always questionable. The gospel has always been wasteful. The cross, Paul says, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But this is God's story. And this is what he's calling his people to live into. And in this story, we as God's people have always been, as the psalmist says in Psalm 40, poor and needy. Read the end of, of Psalm 40. It's good. 
As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord has thought of me. And the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 40 is that just as the Lord thought of me once in my poverty, he will think of me again. It's this beautiful sort of idea. We have always been poor and needy. We have always been strangers in the land that didn't belong to us. This is what Israel had always been, right? Israel had never been anything more than a gleaner in a field that didn't belong to them. They had never been anything more than people who were coming along to gather up the scraps that don't belong to them. They had always been this. They had always been strangers in a land that wasn't their own, but God had decided to give it to them anyway. This is who they were. And we have always been strangers in this world, yet now he has invited us as citizens into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is the way the story has always looked. We have always been the poor and the needy and the refugee. We have always been the orphaned ones that were taken in, that were offered something we didn't deserve, that was never ours. And so now God tells Israel, Leave something for those who are like you, who share your experience, who have been in the place where you have been. You'll see it over and over again. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Don't forget your identity. Don't forget you're just gleaners. Don't forget you're strangers in the land. Don't forget you were once oppressed. Leave something for the immigrant and the refugee, the lonely and uncared for. See, to harvest your land and hoard all of it to yourself, to take every last grape, that would be the height of hypocrisy. Because you know what it's like to need someone else's generosity. You know what it's like to need somebody else's hospitality. And God has always been doing this for you. How could you withhold it from someone else? It goes so far, that's why I wanted us to read verse 33 and 34. It goes so far as to say, not just that you shouldn't mistreat foreign people, people who are different from you, who are in your land. You should treat them, it says, like native people, like citizens. And then it takes it a step further. You should love the stranger as you love yourself. And alarms are going off in their heads as they're hearing all of this, because they know what that means. They know the commandments, and they know at the center of them is this command, love God, with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. God is trying to make clear. The stranger, the widow, the orphan, the poor, the immigrant, the refugee is your neighbor. The stranger is actually your neighbor and you need to treat them in this way. Those who every other nation in the world might choose to exploit because they're easily exploited, you will refrain from exploiting them and more than that, you will love them as your neighbor, as your brother, as your citizen, as a fellow Israelite. They are to treat the stranger as a neighbor. And I think of that this week. I couldn't help but think of Jesus. He's having this conversation, right? A man comes. It's in the book of Luke. You know the story well. He's an expert in the law. He knows the law inside out. This man teaches the law. And he comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus characteristically turns his question on him and says, you're the expert. Tell us what the law says. 
And the man says, if you remember, well, obviously, love God and, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, good. Seems like you've got a pretty good bearing on things. But the man wants more. He wants to push Jesus a little bit harder. But Jesus, who is my neighbor? This is what the rabbis have been doing for centuries, arguing over what these specific words and phrases meant down to the, the smallest little detail. But who qualifies as my neighbor, Jesus? And Jesus does what? He tells them this story, the parable of the good Samaritan. Jesus points the man, I think, back to Leviticus 19. He tells them a story of a Samaritan man, right? Not an Israelite, somebody they were deeply uncomfortable with, a Gentile and a sinner, right? He tells the story of this Samaritan man who's walking along the road one day and he finds a fallen Israelite, a man who's been attacked, he's been robbed, and he's been left for dead. And there have been multiple Israelite people who have passed by him, but they have neglected him. And then comes this Samaritan, a foreigner and a stranger to him. A man who knows that culturally every rule says just keep on walking, just keep on walking. That's the careful thing to do. And instead, he chooses to stop, to care for the man, to pay for his lodgings. He saves the man's life. And Jesus says, now who do you think has been a neighbor to this man? And obviously, the teacher is, is good enough at his job to know, well, obviously, the Samaritan has been the good neighbor in this scenario. And it's like Jesus is making this scathing statement about Israel. Israel was always supposed to be treating the Samaritan as their neighbor. They were always supposed to be loving those who were outsiders. They were always supposed to be welcoming in the outsider, the widow, the orphan, the alien, and the stranger among them. And here is this scathing moment where they realize the Samaritan is capable of doing the thing they have neglected. You, he says, must go and do likewise. Treat the stranger as your neighbor. Hard words from Jesus, right? And beautiful all at the same time, what he's saying. Hospitality is at the heart of God's people. It's always been there. God was always calling them to this radical brand of hospitality, this radical kind of generosity, even toward those who look different from you even toward those you can't relate to, even toward those you don't have any experience with and you're not quite certain of what to do with. Hospitality has always been there. And Leviticus is full of these hospitality moments. There's this interesting thing. If you look back at verse 5 in chapter 19, we don't have to read it, uh, but you're welcome to check it out. It's telling us uh, about another sacrifice. There are so many different sacrifices, and there are so many different details that come with each sacrifice, right? But in verse 5, they're talking about the peace offering. It's also called a thank offering or a fellowship offering. And the peace offering is just about someone deciding, not because they've sinned, not because anything is wrong, but they're choosing just simply because God is good that they want to offer a sacrifice to him. It's just a thank offering. They're just thankful. It's a peace offering because they are at peace with God and they are celebrating that reality. That's all it is. And it came to be called a fellowship offering because the way this meal looked. Now, a lot of sacrifices would be burned up completely, right? They belonged completely to God. They were his. The priests would get a portion sometimes, 
But generally, the thought was the sacrifice belonged completely to God. What's so unique about the peace offering is that after God is given the finest portion, after the priests are given their portion, there's all this left over. So much meat, right? This is an entire animal, right? And so the family and their friends who were there to worship with them would be able to sit and share in this meal together. It became a very real fellowship offering, right? These people would gather around and eat, feast together at the temple, right? And in the background, there's this other group, the poor, who were gathered at the temple not sure where their next meal would come from. And the point of the fellowship offering is not just that they ought to thank God, right? But that in worshiping God, somehow the poor and the stranger and the needy, the widow and the orphan can be brought in. That there will never be anyone hungry at the temple of the Lord. This is the picture that we're given, right? The offering might have been made simply to thank God, but there was something more coming from it, right? So it's like a peace offering is, is someone who has decided to throw a feast, in honor of God, right? This is the kind of idea we have. They've decided to throw a feast to honor God. And so that means at the table, he's given the seat of honor, right? He gets the finest portion. But the priests are invited as well, and they get their portion. And the family and friends of these people who've made the sacrifice, they have a seat at the table. But so also do the poor. So also do the marginalized and the neglected and those who are in need. The lonely find a place at this table. And so the picture we're given is that someone has decided to throw a feast in God's name, right? This is an, an act of worship, right? And God is turning it into a moment of hospitality. A moment of worship, seemingly this individual decision between me and God, right, has now become something much bigger. I am bringing others into the joy and the goodness of what God is doing in my life. I'm not celebrating it alone. I'm inviting others into it. And one of the coolest facets of this sacrifice is that you're supposed to eat this sacrifice on the first day or the second day, right? So the day you make the sacrifice, you start eating. You can eat it also as like leftovers essentially on the second day. You can keep eating then, but on the third day, you can't eat it. And I think like the first thought that comes to our minds is something like, well, I mean, that's probably a good idea, right? It might go bad after that many days. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's a health concern. Maybe this is wisdom God is giving them. But that's not what God says. God says it's holy. You made a sacrifice, and the sacrifice is holy. And to eat it on the third day would be to desecrate it. And I don't really know why that is. Like, what about the third day makes it so, like, what threshold has been broken now? But all I could think about this week as I was, as I was kind of preparing is it's as if God is saying, if you still got more left over on the third day, you didn't share enough. There shouldn't be any left has to be thrown out. You've been, you've been hoarding it just a little bit too much. You didn't invite enough people to the feast. There shouldn't be so much left over. He's turned a moment of worship into a moment of hospitality, right? And there's this opportunity that we have as worshipers to do the same thing, right? To invite others into the abundance of our lives, to invite others into the goodness of what God has done, the goodness we are experiencing, into our joy, right? And Jesus does this. He teaches his disciples and the crowds this. In the Sermon on the Mount, he does this thing, right? He reminds them of the radical hospitality of every disciple. He says, if someone decides to sue you for your shirt, they want to take your shirt from you, 
They have no reason whatsoever. Not only should you not argue with them, send them away with your cloak as well. Give them more than they're asking for. Even your enemy is your neighbor. Love even your enemy, right? If a Roman soldier comes to you and demands that you carry his gear, his armor for a mile, not only should you not argue with him and quibble with him over whether or not this is really necessary, you should carry it for two miles. Hospitality, generosity, without any sort of merit on the behalf of this person you're helping. You choose to love them in this way, right? Invite others into the beauty and the joy of what God has done in your life. It ought to look peculiar. It will look strange. That's the point. No one else would do this but a disciple. This is the picture he's giving them. And so, with this series, the idea, when, when Jonathan starts talking about hospitality last week, when, when we think of hospitality, the picture we always have is just kind of like, you know, let somebody, you know, come have supper with you, you know, have dinner with somebody, take them to lunch. Sure, that's hospitality. That's, that's, that's a part of it. But it's more than that. Like, that's not the idea. We're not just saying we ought to, you know, feast during the season. We should. We ought to be sharing meals together in this season. We ought to be coming into one another's homes in this season, right? But we ought to be asking ourselves the question, how are we inviting others into our abundance? How are we inviting others into our joy, into the beauty and the goodness of what God is doing? God has always been inviting us into his goodness. How are we now inviting others into the goodness of what he's doing? What does that look like for us? What if in a new year that was our goal? Because there are a lot of goals we make. What if it wasn't just about bettering myself? What if it, it wasn't about becoming a better version of myself? What if it wasn't about accomplishing things I've always wanted, chasing after dreams that are still unrealized? What if it was about more, right? And, and I think some people have really good intentions with their resolutions, right? They have really good ideas, right? I just want to be more joyful, I'll hear people say, right? I just want to be more grateful. Like, I want to take time to celebrate the thing that God is doing. And that is good, right? But what if we were inviting others into that joy with us? What if we were inviting others into the goodness of what God is doing in our lives? Into this joy, into this abundance of the kingdom. What does that look like? And I think the table is the beautiful picture of it. As we come to the body and the blood of Jesus. We're reminded that this, like the peace offering, is a meal that is meant to be shared. When you come to this table, you never come alone. It is meant to be shared. It is meant to be something we are inviting others into. And as the band comes this morning, like I, I would just press that upon you. As you come this morning, what does it look like to invite others into the abundance of what God is doing? What does it look like to invite others into your joy, those places of goodness in your life? What does it mean 
to invite others into our lives as we celebrate what God has done in redeeming us from sin and brokenness and hopelessness. What does it mean to create space in my life for this, right? This is a meal I have to invite others into. The, the joy of the gospel was always meant to be shared. It was always meant to be something we were calling others alongside us in. The abundance of the kingdom of God was always something I wasn't supposed to hoard for myself, that I was supposed to invite others into. How are you doing that? Because at the heart of this table, at the heart of the Son who prepares this meal for us, and at the heart of we who gather around it week in and week out, is hospitality. Radical generosity, not just toward those we like, we enjoy, we deem worthy, even toward the stranger. And on this weekend of all weekends, as we're celebrating Dr. King, right, we think about these things more the kingdom is about those who don't look like me. The kingdom is so much larger than me. The redemption that God is working in this world is so much bigger than me and those who look like me. How am I inviting the other? How are we as a church doing this? I'm not just talking about on an individual level. Like this year is such an opportunity for us to begin asking that question. How are we inviting others into the abundance of what God has been doing among us? the joy of what God has been doing for years. What does that look like? How do we creatively step into generosity and hospitality in a different kind of way? Consider it as you come to the table. Pray about it as we worship. Now let's pray. Father, I thank you for these moments. I thank you for just the beauty of your word. I thank you for how faithful you've been to us. And I thank you that you are not a selfish God, but that you are humble. That you're not an, an isolated and distant God. You are a God des who desires to be known and a God who desires to share your goodness with us. We thank you that you invite us into the garden with you. We thank you that you invite us into the promised land, that you invite us into a kingdom that does not belong to us and you call us citizens anyway. Yeah, so just fill us with joy and show us how we can invite others into it. We pray in Jesus' name.